the gospel could rightly be titled the story that changed the world. Godly people for generations had longed for the fulfillment of God's promise in sending the Messiah. That longing went unrealized through many seemingly ceaseless, endless days of suffering. There was not a prophet who was speaking in Israel. The miraculous interventions of of God that had been known by earlier generations were, were now absent. But then one day, one great day, the, the thing that the godly had expected unexpectedly happened. The unexpected expected. God broke into human history. He broke into human history again to, to announce the birth of His Messiah who would be called His Son. It was the great expected unexpected. Remember the angel Gabriel unexpectedly appeared to an unassuming virgin girl from a disdained region and in a deplorable town. She wasn't, wasn't older than 14 or 15 years old. Just a common girl, poor common girl, engaged to a poor carpenter, a common carpenter. She, she receives a message from this heavenly message and that message was that she would conceive in her own womb and that she would bear a son and that that conception would happen before her marriage even though she had never known a man. Now it's no surprise then that right after she heard that message that she took the four day, the, it was a kind of a dangerous journey, the four day dangerous journey from Nazareth in the north of Israel to the southern area, the hill country of Judea, she was going there to visit a relative. The relative's name was Elizabeth. Now the shocking news was heightened only by the realization that she would become an object of scorn by many. There would be a great deal, an inevitable amount of shame that would, that would be heaped on her. She would become a social outcast, not to mention the possibility that this, the reality of this pregnancy, the revelation of the reality of this pregnancy, would likely cause Joseph to call off the wedding. What we have in the middle of Luke chapter 1 is the account of an unwed teenage mother who is engaged to a relatively poor carpenter, and people no doubt are already talking about her. And so she goes for a time into the southern hill country of Judea, to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when she arrives in the home of Elizabeth, she's greeted. But she is greeted with only what can be called an astounding confirmation of the angel's blessing. Elizabeth exclaims a, a blessing to, to Mary, even though, even though the baby in, in, in Elizabeth's womb, still in, is, is in Elizabeth's womb, the baby recognizes and jumps in the presence of the Messiah. It was at this point that Mary was already with child. Now, we're to assume that there's only probably about a week's time has gone by 
between the appearance of the angel Gabriel and Mary arriving in Elizabeth's home. It's not a lot of time, but it's enough time. It's enough time for Mary to take all of this in. If you can imagine, 13, 14-year-old girl, a young, common, virgin girl from a despised area, a deplorable region. She's now taken in this whole account, this whole narrative, and this just pushes her over the top. When, When Elizabeth almost involuntarily responds with this exclamation of blessing and And the realization of John, the baby in her womb, leaping for joy. It just pushes Mary over the top and she explodes with this paean of praise that is usually known to us by the first word in the Latin translation, magnificat. Listen as I read Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with with her about three months and returned to her home. Mary wants God to be seen as great. She wants to extol Him. My soul magnifies the Lord. That's what the word magnifies means. It it means to, to praise Him enthusiastically. Things are just now beginning to sink in. She's taking all of this in. If you can imagine what that must have been like. And you know how she felt about all of this? You know how she felt about being an unwed teenage mother who was possibly facing the calling off of her engagement and no doubt going to be hearing the, 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 the snickers, the mocks, the scorn, the sneers of her friends and relatives because she's an unwed mother? You know how she felt about that? She felt overjoyed. She felt overjoyed. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. That's what that word rejoices means. The word to rejoice means to be overjoyed. she, She had an idea of what God was doing. She had an idea that God was bringing about salvation and that this salvation would somehow extend to future generations. She, she, she had an idea. You know, the, the song we ever, everyone sings, Mary, did you know? I'll never forget. Some of you remember Roy, Roy Fry years ago. Somebody sang that here and he would whisper to his wife, but he wasn't really whispering. And, and they were singing, Mary, did you know? And he, he said to her, of course she knew. Of course she knew. God told her, you know. She might not have known all of the ins and outs of this, but she knew that God was doing something and she was overjoyed. God had finally, was finally doing what he said 
He would do. And so she wants to shine the light on God big time to show how big and how great and how awesome he is because she is overjoyed her soul. That word overjoyed actually gives the idea of somebody's soul skipping. Her soul was skipping, leaping in ecstatic joy. And and I want you to listen how that comes through in this wonderful hymn of praise. In Luke 1, 46-56, Mary sings this song. Some have called her the last psalmist of Israel. The last psalmist of Israel. Mary sings this song of praise, which is really an account of her testimony. And we get this privilege of listening in as she gives her testimony to Dr. Luke. And he's an investigative reporter and he's listening and he's writing these things down very carefully. And we get the privilege of listening to her testimony. You know how we love to hear people give testimony of the work of God in their lives? We've had the privilege of doing that the last number of weeks. So many of you have been encouraged. Some have been challenged. Some have been convicted about your own testimony, we get the privilege of listening to her testimony as she tells about what God has done. And what I want you to do, especially if you're a young teenage girl, 12, 13, 14, I want you to listen to this. And I want you to think about the depth of understanding that is unveiled here. This is a girl somewhere between 13 and 15 years old, and look at the depth and the seriousness with which she speaks of God. It's not like, so you know, like I was saying that, and then we're like, it's nothing like that. This is, that was a bad impression, but you get the picture. <laughs> this is deep, serious theology, genuine scene of worship, and I want you to see four elements to it. One, God's grace Two, God's mercy. Three, God's sovereignty. And four, God's faithfulness. God's grace, mercy, sovereignty, and faithfulness. What is causing her soul to skip as she launches into this anthem of acclamation, this this paean of praise? Well, first it is God's grace. If you read this and just, don't just read over it, but sit in it and let it sit on you you will notice how this text is just dripping with grace. And a lot of us, we talk about God's grace, but what is God's grace? How how can you sense and understand something of the depth and seriousness of the grace of God? Well, if you're going to, you need to understand some of the things that Mary understood about God's grace. In saying this, look what she says in verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. If you're going to know something about God's grace, you have to first know something about God's, here's a good word for you, transcendence. What does that mean? It's referring to his superiority, his supremacy. I get that. Do you see where he says, he has looked And implied is that he has looked what? Down. Just like the Bible says, Psalm 113, who is like our God who is seated on high? He looks far down on the heavens and the earth. Psalm 138, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. 
To look down means to look on with attentiveness and care. God had designs on providing something for Mary and providing something through Mary that only he could do. And she understood something of his grace because she understood something of his his transcendence. God is up here. He is supreme. He is superior. He is above. And there is nothing that would incline him to look far down except his own nature. She understood something of his transcendence. Not only did she understand something of his transcendence, she understood something. She understood that she had no merit. He has looked down on the what? Humble estate. That's an interesting word. It's just one word in the Greek language referring to... uh, the, The best way to translate the word is actually with the word humiliation. He has looked on the humiliation of his servant the humble origin it it refers to according to context it could even refer to to sin lowliness weakness psalm 136 23 it is he who remembered us in our lowest state for his steadfast love endures forever she understood what enabled her to know something about god's grace was that she understood that she had no merit now I hope you understand this. The doctrine, the Roman Catholic doctrine, if, if you've grown up in a Roman Catholic church or maybe you're here today as a Roman Catholic, I'm not trying to bring any offense by this. I just want to state truth, the plain statement of truth. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the sinlessness of Mary, her heavenly coronation, her bodily assumption, immaculate conception, perpetual virginity, are just absolute, unfounded, phony notions made up from a perverse uh, uh, system. I am always amazed when I hear evangelicals saying something like, well, you know, we pretty much believe the same thing. The Roman Catholic doctrine of the sinlessness of Mary is an evil doctrine that will keep you and millions of others out of heaven. I remember... Some years ago, we were in Paraguay, South America, and we had visited this uh, basilica, where some place where it was said that the that the the Virgin Mary appeared, and they built this golden basilica. And outside were all of these these uh, markets with people selling their their little trinkets. And I'll never forget seeing a figurine there of the Virgin Mary hanging on the cross. And realizing that is exactly why the Roman Catholic Church is filled with damning doctrine. Because it dismisses and discounts not only the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but the sufficiency of the atonement that he made on the cross. Mary saw that she had no merit. And that's how she could speak. Her heart could skip about the grace of God. She understood something of the greatness, the superiority, the transcendence of God. She understood something of, of that, that, that she had no merit. She knew she needed a Savior. She was not a repository of grace. She was a recipient of grace. And then she says, all generations will rise up and call me blessed. And that's true. That's true because only Mary was the human mother of our Lord. But look with me over at Luke chapter 11 for just a moment. And Jesus gives us 
a more full understanding of how we're to take this, this verse. Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Luke chapter 11, verse 27 and 28. As he, Jesus, said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Question, to whom whom does God, who does God call blessed? God calls blessed those who, who hear and heed the word of God. Does he call you blessed? Can you, can it be said of you? All generations will call me blessed. See, she had no merit. Thirdly, in her understanding of God's grace, she understood something of God's holiness. Look back at Luke chapter one for a moment. Verse 49. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name he has done he's done great things i don't deserve it and holy is his name she understood something of his holiness she knew her bible well and she knew that in his essence god is holy the defining characteristic of god is his holiness that is he is other he is above us pure and completely without sin the bible says in psalm 99 3 let them praise your great and awesome name Holy is He. Psalm 111. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Isaiah 47. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. The Holy God. This is what she's saying. The Holy God has looked down on her. He could have been disgusted with her like so many of the elitists were disgusted. And at least God would have been right in doing that. But God, the Holy God did something for her. Instead of being disgusted, He looked down and reached down. You see, This concept of grace, God's grace, was formed by an understanding of the transcendence of God and that she had no merit and an understanding of the holiness, the highness, the otherness of God. But then, lastly, she understood something about God's, here's a great word for you, condescension. Now, we don't like that word, do we? You think about somebody who is condescending. Like I, I saw a t-shirt one time that says, do you even know what the word condescending means? You'll get that later. Somebody who looks down the nose at you with disdain and disgust. But here, when we speak theologically of condescension, we speak of God condescending. We're not talking about Him lowering you but of him lowering himself he has done great things she says he stooped down and he's done something he's intervening in human history the con- when she thought about the grace of god she thought about how he condescended how he stooped you see grace there Understanding grace is understanding that God did something that He didn't have to do. He stooped down and He humbled Himself. He lowered Himself to come down on our level. Doesn't that make your heart skip a beat? Don't you want to exalt such a God who came on our level? 
I think I've told you this before. A number of years ago, we were doing some evangelistic outreach locally in the community, and I knocked on one door of a place that was quite run down, and uh, a young mother opened the door to me, and the, the, the conditions of that house were some things that I've, I've not seen before, even in some third world countries. The TV was kind of blaring, and she was sitting at the table, the table's covered in dirty dishes, and she's just sitting there, kind of listening to me, and kind of watching the television. And the whole time, in the back, there was a little three, four, five, I mean, maybe older, five, six-year-old boy, kept tapping me on the rear end, and I wasn't paying attention to him because I'm trying to talk to his mother, but when I realized that she wouldn't, she wasn't listening, I turned around to hear him saying to me these words, hey, hey, Jesus, Will you come see my room? And the, that, that scene, that event sticks on my heart as I consider the condescension of God where he came down to the lowliest point. And you see, you'll never understand something of God's grace if you don't see yourself as lowly. If you don't see yourself as dirty. If you don't see yourself as needy, that's how Mary could understand something of the grace of God. And it caused her to just explode in this praise. But not only the grace of God, think about the mercy of God. Look at verse 50. You'll see it right there. And his mercy. (laughs) His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the handmaid of grace. Mercy is the kind compassion of God. Better yet, mercy is how God takes pity on the wretched sinner. Mercy holds the door open for God's grace to come in triumphantly, granting the blessing of favor and acceptance. If I'm going to define mercy, I'll say this. Mercy is what causes God to stop and notice poor, wretched sinners. Grace is what cleans them up. Mercy is what causes God to stop and notice. And grace is what cleans them up. J.C. Ryle said, Let us rise from our beds every morning with the deep conviction that we are debtors and that every day we have more mercies than we deserve. Well, the question becomes then, to whom does God show mercy? (laughs) Mercy, Mary says, is for those who fear Him. He shows mercy to those who fear him. Now, I want you to understand, friends, it is not hard to fear God. You just have to see him as God. It's no harder for you to fear God than it is for a mouse to fear a cat. It's no harder for you to fear God than it is for an abused and abandoned puppy who will just fear anyone who comes along. It's, It's not. Difficult to fear God. He is awesome in His majesty and completely and utterly different than you. He is holy and He is absolutely righteous. He is above you. Furthermore, He has the eternal ability to cast you into outer darkness forever. And you look at Him and you see Him and you fear Him. But, There's something about this God whom you fear that makes you want to draw near to Him. You have a reverence for Him. You 
You're like that poor, abandoned, abused puppy who normally would just turn away from everybody and everything, but, but who is somehow drawn to come towards somebody, tail tucked between his legs, crawling down, hunched down, and there's something in that poor, abandoned, abused puppy that makes him look up in the eyes. And that's what God is. God in His mercy draws near to those who fear Him, who like knowing that God could just destroy us in a moment, even though that's true, we're still drawn to Him in reverential awe, crawling to Him, tail tucked between our legs, abused, abandoned, beaten, dismayed, disregarded, outcast. And we still come to Him. And Mary says, His mercy is for them. He is always merciful to those who fear him. He just acts in pity. To whom does he show mercy? Those who fear him. When? From generation to generation. That is to say, there will never be a time when God will not show mercy to those who fear him. Psalm 103, 17. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. I can stand before you today and say there will never come a time in which God's mercy is expended where He will not look on pity, look on you in pity when you come to Him in fear. God's grace, God's mercy, God's sovereignty. Verses 51 through 53. What's interesting in, well, actually, verses 51 through 54, in these verses, there are six past tense verbs. He has, he has, he has, he has. Mary, what she does in this part of this, this psalm, really, is, is she takes a sort of sweeping view of history, and she views history as his story. And she thinks about all that God has done all that God has done, and she connects what God has done to what He is doing, which gives her hope for what He will do. Six past tense verbs, each of them speak of God acting of His own will, unencumbered, unhindered by anything or anyone else. And if you want a good definition of sovereignty, that's it. It is sovereignty is the freedom for God to act unencumbered, unhindered by anything or anyone else. That's sovereignty. And look what he does. He has, and they, she, speaks, she speaks here of the strength of his arm. He has shown strength with his arm. We do this all the time, right? Hey, are you strong? We teach our kids this. Yeah, look at me. I'm strong, right? Let me feel your muscles. Who, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah would say in Isaiah 53, Psalm 98, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation. To speak of the strength of God's arm is a way of speaking of God's redemptive work throughout history. Mary is considering the redemptive work of God and how it has been shown throughout history and now how He has demonstrated His sovereign power once again. Then she says he scattered the proud. Isn't that interesting? Scattered the proud and the thoughts 
of their heart. This reflects again on the work of God throughout redemptive history. And listen, history is the account of God bringing down the proud. One of the most vivid portrayals of this has got to be King Nebuchadnezzar. The great king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And he finally says, after dealing with God in Daniel chapter 4, when God put him out to pasture, I mean the great king put out to pasture, nails growing like eagle's claws, getting down on all fours, eating grass. Such was the craziness that Nebuchadnezzar was subjected to. And he said this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He brought, brings down the mighty, brought down the mighty from their thrones. Again, think of Nebuchadnezzar. It is decreed, Daniel said, of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will he brings down the mighty you see this is mary celebrating the sovereignty of god who is free to act unencumbered and unhindered by anything or anyone exalts those of the humble state he casts the wicked to the ground but the lord lifts up the humble psalm 147 6 Mary is presently experiencing the way that God works redemptively in history. Fills the hungry. Think about that. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus says and reads in Luke chapter 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom to the captives. Right? He sends the, way the, rich, sends the rich away empty. He, he helps Israel. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. When it says that in verse 54, he has helped Israel in the remembrance of his mercy. It is he has sent out his support. He is doing what he said he will do. He is, he's doing what he said he'll do. She's celebrating the sovereignty of God. Nothing's hindering. Nothing's encumbering him. He's just doing. But you see, what happens is, as we go through life, and think about these godly people who longed for the coming of Messiah for generations, and it seemed like for 400 years that no prophet spoke. For more than 400 years, no miracles done in Israel. It seemed like God wasn't doing anything. And sometimes that's the way it is in our lives. We think that God is silent, that He's being quiet. But you have to realize you do not serve a silent God, you serve a sovereign God. She celebrates His grace, His mercy, His sovereignty, and His faithfulness. Verses, verse 56, as he sp- or verse 55, as He spoke to our fathers. I love that. Mary recognizes that God did what He did just as he said to Abraham and to the other fathers. In other words, Mary sees God doing what he promised to do. This is almost a direct quote, I think, from Micah 7.20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Listen, God is doing what he is doing in response to his promise, which is his covenant with Abraham. And his covenant with Abraham is simply a working out of the eternal covenant between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
when they agreed together before the foundation of the world, when they agreed together to create a world of men and women, and from that world to redeem people by the electing work of the Father, the redeeming work of the Son, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And what Mary sees, she understands something. That that eternal covenant is intersecting in time and space. She, from a little shanty there in Nazareth to this house on the Judean hillside, comes to the realization of that eternal covenant. She witnesses the faithfulness of God to His promise. God is faithful to Himself. He cannot deny Himself. And Mary understands that truth. You see, what had happened is, Mary had been taught this for a long time. God makes a covenant. God has made a covenant with Abraham. God's made a covenant with His fathers. God is faithful. God is faithful. She had been taught that for a long time. But now... She experiences it. And brothers and sisters, we have the account of this story so that we can know the certainty of the story that changed the world. The story that changed the world can be the story that changes you and me. All of this laid out before us so that, so that God can demonstrate to us the veracity of the certainty of these things. She celebrates God's faithfulness. It, what had been out there for so long as just words now became reality. And you say, well, how does that happen? Because maybe you're wondering, how does it happen? You say, well, I don't have any angels appearing to me. How does it happen that, that the eternal covenant of God would intersect in my time and space? How could it happen where you, a poor, common, lowly Joe Schmo, can come into contact with the eternal covenant of God? There are three tools, three resources that God uses, three instruments that God used for Mary and that He'll use for you as well. You know what they are? Number one, God used her humility. God used her humility. There, she understood that there was no merit. There was no merit in her to please God, only His mercy. If you want to, to be able to come into contact, to intersect with that divine covenant that was made in eternity past and brought into time and space through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ when He suffered and bled and died on the cross and was buried and three days later rose again and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father where He waits to return again and receive His own unto Himself. If you want to be able to intersect with that, I would say cultivate humility. Understand you are a creature created by God. Humility genuinely pursues that purpose. You are owed nothing. Understand that. You are owed nothing. And everything you have, you receive as a gift. God uses humility, cultivated humility, 
in the lives of His creatures to bring them to, to, to understand, to realize, to recognize His eternal covenant, to see His grace and mercy and sovereignty and faithfulness and to embrace it. Cultivate humility. Second tool that God uses is others. I think it is tremendously telling that this Magnificat did not happen until after Mary's encounter with her oldly, older, godly relative, Elizabeth. God uses older, godly people to bring to bear His covenant promises in our lives. Kids, your parents, your grandparents, continually affirming and confirming the work of God in their lives, in history, and in your life. And let me say something to those of you who are older. By the way, everybody here is older than someone. Everybody. Some of you are more older, but everybody is older than someone. What are you waiting for? Why do you continually refuse to take someone who is younger and to tell them, to encourage them in the things that God has done. Why? I, I have been a pastor now for more than 30 years, and that's one thing I think I will never understand. Why so many, especially older saints, when you retire, you decide to be put out to pasture. Why? Find someone. Find just grab someone, just start reaching out. You'll catch somebody by the scruff of the neck and say, I'm going to tell you, you're coming to my house this week and I'm going to tell you what God is doing. That's God often uses the influence of older godly saints to cultivate a realization of His eternal covenant, the realization of, of what He has done. So God uses humility, God uses others, and then thirdly, God uses the Bible. <laughs> this praise, this song of Mary is dripping. It is saturated with the Scripture. You, this, this screams of Hannah's song in 1 Samuel... It speaks of what David said, Psalm 34, My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Psalm 34, 47. Isaiah 45, verse 21. Isaiah 45, 28. 1 Samuel 1, 11. Psalm 136, 23. Psalm 136, 48. Genesis 30, verse 14. Genesis 30, verse 49. Psalm 126, 3. Psalm 126, 49. Psalm 111, 9. It is filled with the Scriptures. And somewhere, sometime, Mary's young heart was filled with the Bible. Memorizing, reading, remembering, and then... When it came time, the work of God doing His mysterious work as only He could, 
all of those promises were not in vain. The learning of those promises, the reminding of that word was not in vain. Let me tell you like this. You remember the story of John Newton, I'm sure. John Newton, the author of the song Amazing Grace, who said that he was out on the slave trade, pursuing sin, deciding to sin to the full. But through a series of events, he ended up in the galley with the other slaves as they were coming back in the boat in the midst of an incredible storm. A storm which he thought would certainly end their lives. And as he was, he said, as he was there, both rowing and bailing at the same time, he recalled some of those verses of Scripture that his mother had taught him when he was on his mother's knee. And he decided then and there, as he rehearsed some of those scriptures, a man who had been, been seasoned, a veteran sinner in the world, into the, to the longest and the, the deepest and darkest valleys of sin that the world had to offer, he decided then and there that he remembered some of those promises and he said, God, if you get me out of this, I'll serve you forever. I want to tell you something. That God uses His Word. Parents, God uses His Word in the lives of your children as you teach. And as you, you model. As you teach them to memorize. As you show them the practical implications of God uses that in, his, in, in children's lives. So that in the mystery of God, in the mysterious working of God, when it's His time for that eternal covenant to intersect time and space, God often brings to mind those precious words, those precious promises that have been long written on their heart and they embrace. If you want to be able to come to grips with the grace, mercy, sovereignty, and faithfulness of God, immerse yourself in the Word. See over and over and over again, how Jesus Christ is the historically verifiable Messiah, true to His Word. And you can embrace Him. And I wonder today, have you embraced this Christ? Have you trusted Christ? Do you know for sure that if you were to die today, that you'd be with God in heaven? If today's the last day, if today's your last day, and you meet God in heaven, He says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What answer do you give? Oh, you say, oh God, I've been a good person. And God says, come on. We both know that's not true. You've not, remember this, and remember this, and remember this. But you come to God, pleading His grace and the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in your place on the cross. That's why He died on the cross. He suffered for your sin that He might bear up the full penalty and He bled and died and three, and they put Him into a tomb and then three days later He rose again. And even now in some of your hearts, that message is resonating with your heart and you're, you're like that poor abandoned puppy. You're crawling to God, fearing, but there's a bit of mercy because you see something in His eyes. You hear something in the message and you come before Him with your tail tucked between your legs, pleading. And I can tell you, He will never cast you out. Right where you're seated, confess your sin. Confess your need of Christ. And trust Him wholly. Best you can in your heart, you trust Him right now. And He will save everyone who comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory 
of his name. And you can walk out of here today with your soul skipping. And may his name be praised. Let's pray.